Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, Armorall, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every $20 you spend on Armorall products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at Armorall.com. Armorall, less work, more clean. Terms apply. It's time. Are you ready to make a change for the better? One that will help save our planet and keep money in your wallet. There's a revolution happening. The momentum is growing. What is this awesome thing called? It's officially known as a zero emission vehicle, but you can call it Zev. This week, we're gonna get electric with zero emission vehicles. We'll learn all about the different types that exist and the demand that's really out there. And in our SaaS class, we'll learn about the incentives that may get us all hooked on renewable energy. I'm Jason the Germ Guy Tetro, and I'm going to charge you up on getting down with Zev. It's time to get started. This is the Super Awesome Science Show. Imagine a world where pollution is a thing of the past. This isn't a dream. I know we're a long way off, but as I mentioned earlier, zero emission vehicles, better known as ZEVs, are a great way to help improve the planet. You've probably heard of the name Tesla as a car company, so you're already aware of ZEVs. That brand makes a battery-powered vehicle. In the past decade, you've definitely seen Priuses and other hybrid vehicles out and about. They may not be ZEVs, but they have helped pave the way. And the path is bright thanks to another source of fuel. It's hydrogen and could represent the future for all vehicles, even if they're barely known right now. Thankfully, our first guest has spent decades researching the different types of fuels that can be used to power zero-emission vehicles. His name is Zhang Gou Li, and he is a mechanical and mechatronics engineering professor at the University of Waterloo. He has recently been awarded a grant to improve the function of hydrogen fuel cells and make them more attractive and, yes, inexpensive for all of us to use. When we talk about zero-emission vehicles, most people will immediately think about the battery-operated vehicles, like the Tesla. But there are other types that are out there, including fuel cells, which is your focus of research. Tell us a little bit more about the battery vehicles and where fuel cells come into this. The battery electrical vehicle has been around for a long time. In fact, they were first around like about half a century before gasoline engine even being invented. However, they have issues with the energy density of the batteries, so therefore they have a limited driving range and they have a long recharging time, and also there's an issue related with safety, which is the losing mine batteries often getting into, burn into fires, and that's a plenty of these incidents around, in the, around the world, basically, by different vehicle manufacturers. A hydrogen-fueled vehicle, basically what you do is you have hydrogen used as a fuel, and they produce through electrochemical reaction to produce electricity directly. So the electricity 
like uh, you know, usual electrical vehicle, power the electrical motor and driving the wheels. In theory, there are quite a few type of fuel cells kind of under development, and the one particular suitable for fuel, uh, vehicle application is really just one type, which is called polymer electrolyte membrane fuel cells or PEM fuel cells. What you have is hydrogen being used as a fuel instead of traditional gasoline or diesel, and oxygen in the air coming as oxygen. And they're separated in the fuel cell by a, a layer called membrane electrolyte. So the hydrogen and the air do not mix. However, they go through the electrochemical reaction at a temperature less than 100 Celsius degree. And such a low temperature operation gives you a quick start up and a good dynamic response. It also must last longer. If you're not losing all of that energy to heat, use it for driving. Yes, you are right. So as a result, the combustion engine, the efficiency are not very high because a lot of heat got lost to the environment. While for this type of electrochemical reaction at a low temperature, it's all control reaction. So you could theoretically, you can reach a very high efficiencies. Even on practical side, you can reach, you know, 60, 70% efficiency. So that it's much higher than the combustion engine that could have. So does that translate then into better mileage? Yes, you are right. Because... This type of fuel cell has much higher fuel efficiency compared to combustion engines, which typically you could say at least doubled, which means you could go twice as long for the same amount of fuel you are using. Now, of course, the fuel in this case is hydrogen, which means that you'd have to have some kind of uh, hydrogen tank to fuel it, or you would have to use some kind of liquid that you can make hydrogen from. But the question then is, is that making it easier for us to be able to fill? Is it going to be easier to charge? Heck, is it even going to be safer because it's not going to be as flammable? Or maybe it's going to be more flammable if you're talking about hydrogen gas. Okay, so you raised two questions here. First is how hydrogen may be fueled on board. And first of all, for this type of fuel cell, yes, it does require hydrogen to be used for the reaction in the fuel cell. So it requires a source of hydrogen on board. So typically, either you have a pure hydrogen being stored on board in terms of either gas or liquid form, conventional in compressed gas form, or alternatively, you could have a hydrogen-rich compound on board a vehicle that can be converted to hydrogen-rich gas before going to the fuel cell. Okay, so other way has been tried, and one easy way, for example, to using methanol on board and you reform methanol into hydrogen-rich gas, okay? So this is the one way to fuel this type of fuel cell. And the second question you raise about its safety, safety depends on which angle you are looking at it. First of all, all fuels are kind of a danger because they have high energy content. So if you don't follow the standards and codes, then there'll be a real danger, okay? Whether it's gasoline, diesel, or natural gas, or hydrogen, first thing. Now, second, that hydrogen may be safer 
from the perspective that uh, hydrogen is a very small molecule. Its molecular weight is only two compared to air, which close to 29. So that when the hydrogen leaks, the buoyancy force will make hydrogen going up in the air, far away from the vehicle. So if the burning is burning in the air, not around the vehicles. So the vehicle is safe. If the gasoline or diesel fuel, they are heavier than air. So when leakage occurs, it will be on the ground and the burning coming upwards that will burn the vehicles. And it happened to be if a kind of accident or collision causing the leakage, the vehicle kind of being deformed, the occupant inside the vehicle may be injured, so they may not be quick to get out that the burning around the vehicle will actually causing a life-threatening situation for the people inside the vehicle. So in this sense, hydrogen may be safer. So I hope I can kind of, you know, give you a different perspective on this issue. Speaking of perspective, you've recently been awarded $1.9 million to explore new fuel cells. Take us through that work. Well, we've been working on fuel cell research and development for decades. And the, the leasing project is built on our past check records. And we're trying to take one step further to make fuel cell more economical and with better performance and durability. By saying so, what we're trying to say, the existing technology, the prime fuel cell technology, is at the early stage of commercial uh, application for electrical vehicles. However, there are technical areas to be improved further, and these are the three issues interrelated, which are performance and the lifetime, or often called durability in this field, and the other is the cost. Right now, the cost are a bit high just because the traditional wisdom in the design to try to guarantee the performance durability and kind of sacrifice the cost. So the way we are doing in this project is trying to develop better materials and better designs and better manufacturing processing techniques to make the fuel cell having a lower cost. About fuel cell mean the fuel cell product will be cheaper and they have better performance and lifetime that will meet consumer expectation for electrical vehicle applications. How long do you think it will be before we see fuel cells overtaking gasoline tanks in our vehicles? Well, first, first of all, fuel cell vehicles are commercially available from a number of car manufacturers. And uh, the technology is basically there, except that the car industry is kind of vehicles, as you know, it's a low profit margin kind of product. So per vehicle, the profit margin is small. But however, since the vehicle market is large, like for example, last year in North America, 15 million new vehicles were sold. So if you multiply 15 million, the total profit is substantial. Fuel cell vehicle right now at the early stage, we don't have that kind of large market share. So in a way, reflect back to is the vehicle price is a bit high at this stage. Now, you're talking about the future when no one has crystal ball, kind of North American market typically takes somewhere in the order of 20 years or so to make really acceptable widely by the consumers. So in that sense, we still have a long way to go to 
have fuel cell vehicles overtaking, you know, traditional gasoline vehicles. But the hope is high for the community. This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Window. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot... Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Have you considered buying a Zev? I know I have. Here's the thing. I haven't bought one yet. Have you? It's not surprising. The biggest hurdles when it comes to investing in new technologies are always going to be cost, dependability, and of course trust. Our next guest has been exploring this dilemma many of us experience when we're considering buying anything as revolutionary as a Zev. Her name is Zoe Long and she is the research manager for the Sustainable Transport Action Research Team at Simon Fraser University. What is the demand for ZEVs like right now? Our research finds that uh, around 24% or, or one in four car buyers is interested in purchasing a ZEV. However, this is more, more in an idealized world because in reality, there, there are a number of barriers that prevent all of these prospective car buyers from purchasing a ZEV. So barriers like a lack of actual supply of the vehicles, lack of a variety of vehicles in sizes and styles, a lack of recharging access, and consumers not knowing a lot about ZEVs, a lack of familiarity, constrains this idealized demand. So when we take these actual real-world barriers into account, the actual demand for ZEVs drops down to about 1%, which is actually what the level of sales of ZEVs is right now in Canada. That seems rather low, although here in Alberta, we were just having a discussion about the idea of going to anywhere with a small electric vehicle as opposed to a big pickup truck. (laughs) So I can appreciate Mm -hmm. that, yes. Even if you have demand, there may not be something there. And that's really what your research is focused on, this concept of latent demand. First of all, just what does that mean? Yeah, so simply put, Latent demand is just a demand for a product that a consumer can't satisfy. So for the case of Zev, latent demand can be defined as the idealized, unconstrained demand for Zev in the absence of these real-world barriers. So if all consumers were fully aware of Zev and how they work, if they could get any vehicle they wanted in any type of Zev drivetrain and they could recharge it easily, that would be the latent demand. And our research indicates that there is a gap between this latent demand and the actual realized demand, which is sales of ZEVs. What are the main obstacles from the human perspective or from the consumer perspective that possibly could be dealt with by companies to help them to gain more interest in ZEVs? There are a number of obstacles and barriers that can be overcome. 
So I think one main obstacle that we find in our research that is preventing this latent demand from being realized would be consumers' understanding or familiarity with devs. So many people don't really know about devs. They don't know how they work. They don't understand their basic operation. They don't really understand the difference between a pure battery electric vehicle that needs to be plugged in to be, re- to be recharged and a plug-in hybrid electric vehicle that has a battery that can be recharged as well as a gas engine. So I think a lot of automakers as well as the government can do a lot in the realm of consumer education and helping consumers understand what their options are with them, how they work, and this might make consumers realize that they're a more viable option than they might have perceived before. However, our research actually finds that in the last couple of years, consumer understanding and familiarity hasn't increased much. So when we look at survey data from 2013 and 2017, our measures of consumer understanding and familiarity haven't, haven't really changed. So while there's more talk about ZEVs and more models and more policies, people haven't really caught on to the idea yet. So I think that governments as well as automakers can, can work on the consumer education and, and familiarity piece. Another large barrier um, to ZEV adoption is actually a lack of adequate supply of ZEVs. So that takes into account the physical supply, the number of vehicles that are available for consumers to purchase. There aren't enough to fulfill the latent demand that we find, as well as uh, a lack of diversity of, of makes and models. So right now, you can't get very many Zevs in an SUV size or a crossover size. is one of the more popular styles of vehicles in Canada. So even if a consumer wanted to purchase a Zev, they might not be able to get it in their desired body size, style, or even from from a brand that they like. So I think this lack of supply is another barrier that can be overcome. And then, as you mentioned, there's the the issue of price. So ZEVs are still more expensive than a conventional gas or diesel-powered vehicle, and the sticker price might deter prospective buyers. That being said, in Canada, we actually have a number of subsidies or rebates that consumers can have access to to reduce that sticker price. So the government of Canada will give you $2,500 to $5,000 for uh, purchasing a ZEV. And in the governments of BC and Quebec, you can also get a little bit of money back when you purchase a ZEV. So it seems education is a major concern here. And it looks like influencers, like, say, the E-series of racing cars, isn't enough to satisfy people to get them to start buying. What about advantages to having a ZEV? Do you think that might work? Tell us about some of them. Yeah, so ZEVs are actually a lot cheaper to operate than conventional vehicles. Um, Electricity costs less than gasoline throughout Canada, and ZEVs also have lower maintenance costs than conventional vehicles, so um, less engine repair costs. Another advantage that people might perceive would be being able to charge your vehicle at home. You don't have to go to the gas station anymore. When you need more fuel, you can just charge your vehicle at home, plug it in at night like you would your cell phone or your laptop, and in the morning, it's fully charged. When you think about it, it doesn't really matter. If you have a battery that can be recharged, whether it's a car, a cell phone, or something else, it essentially falls in that same idea of consumer electronics. 
Do you think we could help increase demand if we start looking at cars as essentially being no different than our tablets or phones? Possibly. I think that might appeal to some consumers. One aspect that our research taps into is this idea of consumer heterogeneity, meaning consumers are different. So we find that some consumers are attracted to Zev because they have these technological lifestyles. They're really into technology, tinkering with technology, having the latest and greatest technology. So I think some kind of marketing or promotional campaign that promotes Zevs as the latest and greatest technology will definitely to appeal to consumers like that. Other consumers, maybe not so much. I think one, one piece to highlight is that there's probably not going to be a, a one-size-fits-all education or information campaign that will work with all consumers just because people use their technology and use their vehicles for different reasons. And what about the fear that any kind of marketing is going to lead to the shiny object syndrome, where you're going to see a huge influx of people coming into the dealerships because they've heard about Zevs or maybe you know Kim Kardashian is driving a Zev. But then it starts to turn into a drought afterwards. So I think one of the other important pieces to highlight is the importance of policy. So I would hope that if there might be a small bump due to the shiny object effect, governments will be putting in policies to help support demand throughout where we might not see that drop if the right policies are in place to help push people towards Zez and keep supporting the demand that's there. It's Ask Class time, and today we're going to explore the ways we can improve the trust and acceptance of Zevs. Granted, some companies like Honda are already moving to phase-out gasoline vehicles, but as you heard from Zoe Long, getting that latent demand into reality is going to require more. Our guest teacher is Scott Harding, and he is a professional researcher in the Plug-In Hybrid and Electric Vehicle Research Center in the Institute of Transportation Studies at the University of California, Davis. He has looked at how various countries use incentives to increase market share of ZEVs and is going to share his findings with us now. Who are the current adopters of ZEVs? So when, when we're sort of researching that, we have to remember that the electric vehicle market is, is still in a very early stage. So even in California, which is the uh, leading state in, in the U.S. for EV adoption, only 8% of new vehicle sales are electric vehicles. And I guess the only market globally that's approaching sort of a, a mainstream market is probably Norway, where there are about 50% of uh, new vehicles sold are electric in, in Norway so far this year. And so that's important to think about when we, when we think about the early buyers, because the early buyers of any new technology are not typically uh, representative of the general population. Um, so, of course, this is something that we're seeing with electric vehicles. Generally speaking, they're uh, mostly male. Uh, around 75% of them are male at the moment. Uh, they're highly educated. Typically, they'll have um, a bachelor's degree or, or a master's degree or even a, a doctorate. Their income is high. Their average income is, in California at least, is two to three times higher than, than the state average. And they generally live in uh, like detached houses, not living in sort of a, an apartment or condo. So not quite a typical consumer, but um, it, it is slowly changing over time. So every year we do see the average income of an EV buyer dropping. We are seeing more females buying them and, and we are also seeing more people in rented houses buying them. But again, it's, it's a slow change because we're at a very sorry, early stage of the market. 
Take us through some of the incentives that have been proposed to increase acceptance of ZEVs. So I guess the most common incentive and the, and the one people talk about most is, is just a, a financial purchase incentive. So you have that in Canada. I think it's for an EV. It's, I think it's 5000 Canadian dollars off the purchase price of an EV. Then in the US, you have the $7,500 federal tax credit, which is an incentive that you receive at the end of the financial year buying an EV. It's basically you get like a tax reduction. And then also in the state of California, there's a $2,500 rebate that you get as a check after you buy the vehicle. So, so the ones in the US at the moment you get after buying it. Uh, in, in other countries like Canada, you, you get it as soon as you buy the vehicle. So if you go into a dealership, the car is immediately $5,000 cheaper. So purchase incentives are sort of one area, and they are important for people. Um, often when we do studies, we, we find that for a lot of people, that's the most important incentive in, in sort of encouraging them to buy an electric vehicle. Then the second sort of group of incentives we think about are, we, we call them I don't know, indirect incentives or reoccurring incentives. And these are things that you sort of receive as a benefit of owning the vehicles. So a common one is in, in some U.S. states, you can drive an electric vehicle in a carpool lane with just one person in the vehicle. And so in places like Los Angeles or the Bay Area, where there's pretty crazy congestion, uh, that's very important for people because it, it can cut their sort of commute times and their travel times because they can go in the carpool lane just with one person. And that's also a big thing in Norway. Um, in Norway, you could drive electric vehicles. Initially, you could drive electric vehicles in bus lanes. So again, that helped people you know, on their commutes and driving around uh, urban areas. They, they've discontinued that now because there are so many electric vehicles. The bus lanes are getting congested with electric vehicles. <laughs> um, <laughs> and then other, uh, other things are like road charge or toll uh, fee exemptions. That's a common one. Not so much in the US, but again, in Norway, they have electric vehicles don't pay any road tolls. In the UK and London, you can drive an electric vehicle into the city of London without paying the congestion charge fee, which is £11.50 per day. So that can be quite a strong signal to, to people. And it can actually save you quite a lot of money if you're driving an electric vehicle on a toll route every day, then you're going to save a lot of money every year. So we know that it's now working in Norway. What's it like in the rest of the world? The main problem that I think we have at the moment is that people just aren't aware of electric vehicles. So even in California, the leading state for, for electrification, about 50% of consumers can't name an electric vehicle for sale. They can't even, when we ask them this question in surveys, they can't even think of a Tesla. They can't even put that in the survey. This is like half the population still have pretty much no idea that this transition is happening. So yeah, it's, it's pretty surprising and and we've been, um, so my colleague Ken Karani has been tracking this since 2013. So he does a survey um, every year or every year and a half. And, and we found that there's been no change in, in this. So since electric vehicles were introduced to the market in 2012, there's been no increase in, in sort of consumer awareness. For me, that is probably one of the biggest and most commonly overlooked barriers to sort of growing the market. If we don't make more people aware of them, we can't continue to grow the market. I'm completely discombobulated. Elon Musk, the, the, the CEO, the, the founder of Tesla, he put his own roadster in space. Who didn't see that? And yet, right, yeah, exactly. I mean, how, how is it that we're not able to have 50% of the population even know what a ZEV happens to be? Like, is this something government needs to be taking under its wing? Or how are we going to increase awareness? 
That is, you know, that's a good question. And the Tesla thing was very exciting when he when he launched an electric vehicle into space. Obviously, that was extremely exciting. But the people who it's extremely exciting for are often the people who are already engaged, they're already thinking about electric vehicles. It may not necessarily be as exciting to someone who's quite happy driving their Camry to and from work. Or a flat earther. <laughs> right, exactly, yeah. For those people, um, you know, they're happy driving their internal combustion engine vehicle every day, you know, if you think about it, there's nothing that problematic about an internal combustion engine vehicle. Obviously, I don't think they're a great idea, but for most people, every time they buy a new vehicle, it's more efficient, it's got more technology, it's more refined. Gas isn't that expensive yet. So for the most part, there's nothing pushing people to think about electric vehicles. There's a lot of things that would, when they start thinking about them, that would pull them towards electric vehicles, like you know, they're smoother, they're quieter, they're faster, they're cheaper to run. There's a bunch of incentives, but there's nothing yet that's sort of pushing them to start really thinking about buying an electric vehicle. Because for the most part, for most people, an internal combustion engine vehicle is still pretty good at doing its job of transporting them around. So instead of a revolution, do you think we just need to have an evolution? Is that really the way we should be approaching this? So I would say that incentives, they they do work. Once people are aware of electric vehicles and they start learning about the incentives, those things are often enough to sort of nudge them or push them over the edge and, and make the purchase decision. But what incentives, what they don't do is make people aware of electric vehicles or make people aware of the incentives. One thing that we do find is effective in um, engaging more people is, is like word of mouth. So often we find that um, if someone has spoken to a friend or a colleague or a neighbor, or a family member who owns an electric vehicle, that can be quite influential in encouraging them to, to buy one. So I would say that if anybody out there owns an electric vehicle, you should tell everybody about it and try and really encourage other people to get on board with this. Because I think, you know, hearing from someone within your sort of local network, someone that you trust can be more influential than, you know, government or advertising. So if you have an electric vehicle, uh, tell everyone about it. Well, that's it for this week's AskCast. I hope it has inspired you to learn more about Zevs and maybe to purchase one in the future. For Curious Cast, this is the Super Awesome Science Show. We want to thank everyone who has been listening. Your support is overwhelming. If you're just finding us today, please check out our other episodes on quantum physics, which are needed for any type of Zev, credence and climate change, and the risk to our beer supply. You heard that right and the effort to increase cycling around the world. We want to show our gratitude by taking your questions and answering them on the show. Send me a tweet at jatetro or an email at thegermguy at gmail.com. I always enjoy your emails and I look forward to hearing from you. If you haven't already, make sure to subscribe so you never miss an episode. And while you're there, don't forget to rate and review us. It helps to spread the word and get more people to find the podcast. We're available at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and everywhere you get your streaming audio. You can also listen at CuriousCast.ca. Be sure to check out the show notes for more information about what you heard today and links to all of our guests. The award-winning Super Awesome Science Show is written and hosted by me, Jason Tetro. Dila Velasquez is our story producer, and sound design and final production is by Rob Johnston. Have a great week, and as always... Make sure to show them some sass.